Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. If you had seen young Augustine partying with friends, stealing pears from a neighbor, and lying to his mother just to keep her as far away as possible from him, the idea that he would become one of the greatest leaders in the church might not have crossed your mind. He even joined a group of people who believed things contrary to the Bible. But God worked in his heart, and he went on to become a great defender of the faith, writing numerous works on theology and the doctrine of grace, a true answer to the prayers of his mother. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Kids Talk Church History. I'm Emma. I'm 15, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Trinde. I'm also 15, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm Linus. I'm 12, and I live in San Diego, California. Augustine was a bishop and theologian in the 4th century. He was raised a Christian, but he soon had many doubts about the things he heard in church. He didn't like the Bible because the translation he read didn't seem as refined as the books by classical authors he was studying. Even though Christianity was legalized for the first time about 40 years before Augustine was born, many people, like his father, were still pagans. But Monica, Augustine's mother, was a Christian and prayed often for Augustine's salvation. In a book he wrote about his past called Confessions, he said he was only interested in pleasing himself and being praised by others. Once, he and some friends stole some pears just for the fun of stealing. They didn't even eat the fruit. Ah, yes. Later, this event made him realize how much we all, left to ourselves, tend to sin. Eventually, his father sent him to Carthage in today's Panacea to study. That means he was living away from his family in a big city with many attractions for young people like him. It was at this time that he discovered the teachings of the Manichaeans. He liked their teachings because they sounded smart and spoke well, but what they taught was not biblical. We'll talk about them later. This made his mother very sad. Lying to his mother to make sure she didn't follow him to Italy was quite bad. He told her the boat was late and that she should go say some prayers, and then he left. I can only imagine how she felt. But even more amazingly, she still followed him. It just took time because she couldn't just hop on the next plane like we could do. Anyhow, he became a successful lawyer, so much so that he worked in the emperor's court. That's in Milan, Italy. Our former pastor is now a pastor in a church in Milan. He shared some photos of the place where Augustine was baptized. Yes, because he was finally baptized by local Bishop Ambrose. Ambrose was a good speaker, and his sermons answered many of Augustine's questions. Augustine stayed near Milan for a while. He lived with his mother and other young Christians. Then he headed back to North Africa. But, sadly, his mother died on the journey. This was very painful for him. He recognized how God had used her to turn his life around. I have read that one day when he was attending church in Hippo Regis, a town in what today is called Algeria, the local bishop noticed him in the crowd. And when the bishop said the church needed young, intelligent people to speak out against false teachings, everyone knew he was talking about Augustine. So they pushed Augustine to the front of the room and the bishop ordained him as a priest right on the spot. That would definitely not happen today. I guess it was normal at that time. Yes, so many things were done differently. And then he started crying because he didn't want to be a priest. But the people thought he was crying because he wasn't a bishop. 
But later, he did become a bishop, and he spoke against false teachings. He is mostly famous for speaking against the teachings of a monk called Pelagius, who said people are naturally able to choose between good and evil and will go to heaven just by living a good life. But the Bible teaches that because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, we are all born spiritually dead, and a dead person can't choose to do good things. Only God's grace through Christ can bring us to life and give us the ability to obey. Augustine made this very clear. He said that even our love for God is put inside of us by God himself. So many people today think like Pelagius. They think that they just need to look inside themselves. If they are Christians, they think of God's grace as a supplement, something just to help them. Well, now it's time to look at our mailbox. We have a question from Jasmine, who is 12 and lives in Linden, Washington. She has read a book about Augustine and wondered, what did the Manichaeans believe and why was it bad? We'll pass on this question to our guest, Dr. Philip Carey, professor of philosophy at Eastern University and author of many books and a video course on Augustine. But first, the usual reminder, send us your questions to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org and you may win a free copy of a book by Simonetta Carr. The book we are offering in relation to this episode is Augustine of Hippo, where you will find lots of information about the man we just described. That's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find the link on our website. Professor Carey, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Let's start with Jasmine's question. What did the Manichaeans believe and why was it bad? Well, the Manichaeans were um, what you could call radical dualists. Uh, dualists are people who divide the world into two parts, and the two parts were soul and body. Now, that's that in itself is not such a bad division because you can divide people that way. But then they went one step further and they said, the body is always bad and the soul is always good. So the soul is like this bit of pure light inside this disgusting, filthy thing called your body. Um. And that gets a couple of things wrong. First of all, um, your body is not inherently evil. Things can go wrong with your body all the time, right? Things go wrong with, with God's good creation, but God's good creation is created good. And that's one of the things that the Manichaeans didn't get. Our bodies may not be as great as our souls. And Augustine thought, well, you know, our, the soul is in, in an important way better than the body, but the body is also good. Everything from top to bottom, from the dirt on the street to the stars in the sky, is God's good creation. There's lesser goods and greater goods, but they're all good. So your body's a good thing. The second thing that they got wrong was about the soul. The soul is always good, they said, um, which, which means that when we sin and do things wrong, the Manichaeans said, Oh, that's the, your your body and all this evil stuff in you that's doing it wrong, but not you. Your soul is pure. It's inherently pure. It never does anything wrong. The devil made you do it and so on. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the devil, the, the evil in your body, anything other than you is what did the sin, not you. So you're pure and perfect inside, except, you know, and the only problem is you've got this filthy, disgusting body that you're in. So that's how dualism uh, works, and that's what it looks like. Um, it, it, it imitates Orthodox Christianity because it, it does say there's a difference between body and soul. Soul is in many ways more important, um, and sin is real. But they denied that God created all things. They denied that God created the body, and they made us sort of pure within without even having to um, 
work at it or for God to work at it. We are not sinners inside, not really. Um, and therefore, we don't have to confess our sin, and therefore, we don't have to repent. And all of that uh, is a great way of pushing people towards the primrose path to damnation. Right. That sounds sort of like Gnosticism. Is is there a large difference between them, or are they pretty much the same? Um, Manichaeanism is a lot like a late form of Gnosticism. Um, the Gnostics arose probably in the second century, although there are roots we can kind of see it already in the stuff that Paul is writing against in some of his letters. Um, the Manichaeans, it turns out, originated in Persia from a family of Christian Gnostics. So there was a there were a bunch of Gnostics in Persia, and um, one of the families of these Christian Gnostics involved this guy, Manny or Manichaeus, he's sometimes called. He's the founder of Manichaeanism. And he basically combined uh, Christian Gnosticism, which is a heresy, with Zoroastrianism, which is the local Persian religion. And when you mix them together, you get Manichaeanism. So there's a lot of Gnosticism in Manichaeanism. Um, the Well, there's a couple of differences, too, um, which we don't need to get into detail about. But if you think of Manichaeanism as a cousin to Gnosticism, you're definitely in the ballpark. Okay. We actually talked about the Manichaeans in my Sunday school because the Belgic Confession rejects their teachings. So when did Augustine stop being a Manichaean? Uh, that happened as he went to Italy. Uh, you, you were telling the story of how he went to Italy uh, first to Rome and then up to Milan in the north of Italy. And there he met Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan. And Ambrose is a great Orthodox Christian, small o, right? And he was teaching sound Christian doctrine. And Augustine listened to him at first because um, Augustine was a professional speaker, a rhetorician, an orator, and he wanted to hear the, the, the greatest orator of, of all of Italy was Ambrose. But as he was listening to Ambrose as a speaker in church, he started actually thinking about what Ambrose had to say. And Ambrose helped him think his way through out of Manichaeanism and into Orthodox Christianity. When he was appointed priest, Augustine started crying. Do you know why he didn't want to become a priest? Yeah. When he became a Christian, or actually when he became an Orthodox Christian, returning to the to the Orthodox Church or the, the Catholic Church, small c, right? Um, in, in those days, by the way, when you when you called someone Catholic, you weren't saying that they, they weren't Protestant because there weren't any Protestants. So the, the opposite of heretic is Catholic. He was rejoining the Catholic Church, the church of his mother, the church of Ambrose. Um, when he did that, it was because he wanted to be a Christian philosopher. He wanted to spend his time contemplating God, reading good books, having philosophical discussions, and coming deeper and deeper into a knowledge of the being of God. But that required leisure time. It required a certain amount of financial support, and it required a, a chance to be away from people. What happened when he was ordained as a priest or a presbyter would, would have been the term. I mean, really was a, the, he was an elder. It was, he was ordained as. He, what he knew was going to happen is he was going to have to spend most of his time and energy teaching ordinary people, right? Illiterate people, because most people uh, at the time were illiterate. Instead of hanging out with well-educated, 
well-off friends doing Christian philosophy, he was going to have to end up preaching to illiterate people and helping them come to know God and come to know the scriptures and become essentially a servant of all of these ordinary Christians. Um, and in retrospect, he thought, you know, God God had a, a good plan for me. Uh, he had the right plan for me. But at the time, it's, it, it wrecked all of his plans. It wrecked the, the life that he wanted to have as a, as a Christian intellectual, let's say. Instead, he's going to be a Christian pastor. I mean, think about the difference between someone who wants to be an intellectual writing really, really deep books and a pastor who has to serve a lot of ordinary people by preaching and making the scriptures understandable to ordinary people. Augustine didn't want that second kind of life, but that's the kind of life he got. Ironically, he became, well, the greatest Christian writer of the first thousand years of Christian history outside of the Bible, uh, and he did it because, because he, he had the life that he didn't want. He ended up serving all these other Christians, uh, which is not what he was planning for, but was God clearly was what, what God was planning for him, and it turned out to be good for both him and for the church. So God got his way, God won, and, and therefore everybody won. So uh, we, we talked about the importance of Augustine's teachings about sin and grace. Why are they still so important today? Right. So Augustine, or Augustine, by the way, you can pronounce the name either way. Augustine, Augustine, doesn't matter. Uh, Augustine took sin very seriously, but without being a Manichaean. He didn't say, oh, the body is evil. No, he said we are um, good creatures of God. Human nature was created good, but we were also children of Adam. And because we are children of Adam, sin inheres in us. We are born children of Adam, and we need to become children of Christ. So in Adam, we are born sinners. In Christ, we are reborn as um, children of God through the grace of God. And, and that's the basic framework of sin and grace that he was teaching. Sin is a, is a disease in our own free will. Our own will is bent, and it's precisely the free will that's in bondage to sin because we freely sin, right? We really like sinning. Uh, we're quite free to sin, and that's what we use our freedom for, and that's why we're in bondage is because we use our freedom to freely and eagerly sin. So God has to do something about that because we can't do it for ourselves. And I think you mentioned um, the love of God is something that God gives us. That is, our love for God, which we freely choose, is something that is God's gift to us. All of the good in us, all of our goodwill, all of our good deeds are God's gift to us. All of our sins are our own fault. So Augustine will really insist on that, right? Don't blame your sin on anybody else. It's your fault. Uh, don't take credit for the good things in you. Give thanks to God. And that he wants to teach that because what it comes down to is if we're going to love God, then the love of God has to be poured out into our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. That's a quotation from Romans 5 that Augustine just loves. He loves quoting that passage over and over and over again. The love for God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. So when we love God, that's really our love for God. It's our own free will choosing it, 
And it is also at the same time, God's own gift to us, God's gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a both and, right? We freely love God because God has first given us the grace of the Holy Spirit to pour out that love into our hearts. Right. That's so important to remember. Um, You mentioned that he loves quoting that passage from Romans in his sermons, but I was wondering, do we have his sermons and how many books did he write? How, how do we have his writings now? And how many, how how much do we have? We have a ton. We have literally hundreds of his sermons. We have a sermon series on, on all sorts of books of the Bible And we have a a special sermon series on the Psalms, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages long. We have another sermon series on the Gospel of John and another sermon series on the first letter of John. Um, And then sermons that he preached uh, over the course of the church year on all sorts of texts. So we have lots and lots of writings of his. Um, A a full set of Augustine's writings uh, is more than two bookshelves long. Uh, There's a famous little story about him. Uh, a Spanish bishop in the sixth century, I think, named Isidore of Seville, who pointed at his bookshelves full of the writings of Augustine and said, anyone who says he's read all of that is a liar. Uh, Because it's just just too much of it. I haven't read all of it. Um, uh, It's huge. Um, We have more of his writings, I think, than any other writer of the ancient world, Uh, more than Plato, more than Aristotle, more than any of the other church fathers, I believe. Uh, I think that's right. Maybe Chrysostom, who, well, we have more of Chrysostom sermons. But in terms of um, of simply the sheer number of books, um, I think Augustine is is far and away the, the, the leader in terms of just the sheer uh, amount of, of stuff he's written that we still have. So how do we have them? Like, we're... Mm. Who saved them, especially like the sermons? Were they transcribed or did he write them out before he preached them? Yeah, he he does not seem to have written out the sermons beforehand. Um, He probably took some kind of notes and some outlines, um, but he did have people uh, transcribing the sermons. And then it looks like the usual process of composition is he would get the rough notes from the people listening to the sermon, and then he would edit them and shape them and make them suitable for publication. So we don't necessarily have an exact transcription of his sermons, but we do have um, a text that Augustine approved and wanted us to read. And again, we've got hundreds of them. And they're um, not not all of them, I think, are yet translated into English, although there is now a publisher who wants to translate all of Augustine into English. So eventually you'll see um, in a good uh, seminary library, two or three or four shelves worth of books of Augustine translated from from Latin. Yeah. Some quotes from Augustine have become very famous. I often hear pastors quote Augustine's prayer. You, O Lord, have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds it's rest in you. Do you have a favorite Augustine quote? Oh yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um, but I think I my my very favorite um, is something you said that that's hard to translate, but but beautiful. And I'll, I'll give you maybe two or three different translations of it because it's so dense and beautiful. Toward the end of Book Seven in the Confessions, um, which is by the way you just quoted the very first chapter of the Confessions. Toward the end of Book Seven. He's talking about how 
he'd had this intellectual discovery about the nature of God because, you know, he was a Christian philosopher and he's, he's making intellectual discoveries. But he had not yet returned to the Catholic small c church. Um, he thought he could go it alone just by his own brilliant intellect. And he, he certainly was brilliant. And so in re retrospect, 10 years later, uh, Augustine, the bishop, is writing the confessions and thinking, at that time, I wasn't humble enough to hold on to my humble God, Jesus. That's how he puts it. I wasn't humble enough to hold on to my humble God, Jesus. You could also translate it, I wasn't lowly enough to hold on to my lowly God, Jesus. And that's, after all, what the, what the philosophers who aren't Christians don't understand. Right? Um, there's lots of philosophy about God. Right? You can learn something about um, eternity and the divine nature from, from Plato, and, and Augustine did. But what you're not going to learn from the philosophers uh, is that the word became flesh, that God humbled himself and became incarnate of the, Vir of the Virgin Mary. You're not going to learn that. You, you might learn in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, the, the, the word is logos, right? And Augustine actually says, I learned about the logos of God from the philosophers, because logos can mean word, but it can also mean reason. And there's lots of philosophers who believe that there's a divine reason that's there in eternity, but they don't believe that the divine reason, the logos, became flesh. Because that's a real come down for God, right? That God becomes lowly and becomes one of us and becomes a baby as he does at Christmas. That's the humiliation of God, the humility of God. Uh, we want to be great. God was willing to be lowly. And Augustine's problem when he was such a brilliant intellectual but not yet returning to the church was, I wasn't lowly enough for my lowly God, Jesus. And that's, yeah, that's just gorgeous. That's just beautiful. Um, we're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to learn to be as lowly and humble as God was. That's great. And since you've listened to our conversation about Augustine, did we misunderstand anything or leave anything out that was important? Well, um, I don't think you misunderstood anything. Um you left out a ton of things because Augustine led a very interesting life and wrote a ton mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, but it would take uh, much more than all day to, to, dis to discuss all that. Before we have to end, I want to ask you two questions that we ask all of our guests. How did First, how did you become interested in church history and what suggestions do you have for kids who want to learn more? Okay, well, how do we get interested in church history? I was interested in church history because I wanted to understand what I believed. Uh, this, this actually is, is a way of, that Augustine himself talks. He says, you know, faith seeks understanding, right? We come in faith to the word of God, but the word of God is, is infinitely deep, and there's so much to learn. And the way to learn it is to join this company of saints and prophets and heroes of the faith, people like Augustine, people like Luther, people like Calvin, uh, people who can help you learn how to read scripture and understand it. So that's what I wanted to do is, is have these people as my companions on the road. Uh, so, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, and um, fortunately, by the grace of God, I, by the grace of God, I was able to spend pretty much a lifetime studying with Augustine and Aquinas and Lutheran Calvin and all these good people who are 
<laughs> smarter and better Christians than I am, right? Um, and that's actually what I would recommend for all of you folks, right? Um, learn to read well, right? Um, you you learn the word of God in part by learning how to read, um, learning how to read well, learning how to read old books. Um, it helps you reading scripture if you read lots of other old books and learn to read well. It also helps um, to read good stories. Um, read read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? Don't, don't be satisfied with the movie. The movie is not nearly as good as the book, you know. Um, read C.S. Lewis. Read Marilyn Robinson, who writes wonderful novels. Um, but also read Jane Austen. Um, read a lot of Shakespeare. Shakespeare really will teach you what human beings are like, right? I think you'll learn more about what human beings are like from Shakespeare than you could learn from any psychologist. Um, so, so when you get good at reading, you'll have some of the basic skills you need for reading and studying scripture. And that I think is, is the thing to work on. Dr. Carey, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We have learned a lot and feel very privileged to have you here. We just want to remind our listeners to visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And if you subscribe to our email newsletter, you will have a chance to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's new book, Church History. And don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus Trinity, I'm Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.